If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of Mark. That's in the New Testament. Uh, I feel good about saying that because it's been uh, well over a year, close to a year and a half since I've preached from the uh, New Testament uh, here. So I'm excited about that. So turn to the book of Mark, Mark chapter uh, 1 this morning. We're going to begin a series on the book of Mark. So we're going to read together this morning the first 13 verses. The first 13 verses of the book of Mark. Um, A couple of things here. Uh, Flip back, I'm sorry guys. Uh, Titled, The Christian Story, A Takeaway. The Gospel is a story of the Spirit calling us into the wilderness to be saved by Jesus, the Son of God. It is the story, the Christian story of the Spirit calling us into the wilderness to be saved by Jesus, the Son of God. Let's read together and see why we might get that uh, out of the text uh, in Mark chapter 1, verse 1 through 13. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make His path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to Him or were being baptized by Him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes He who is mightier than I the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days came from Nazareth of Galilee. Sorry, in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when He came up out of the water, immediately He saw the heavens being torn open, and the Spirit descended on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to Him. Let's go to the Lord and ask for help. Father, we thank You that we can gather around Your Word because You have been incredibly, incredibly kind to give it. Thank You that we have a written record of who You are, Father. Thank You that we have a record of how You have acted in an amazing way in creation and giving Your Son And thank You that by Your Spirit, You have been kind for two millennia now, over two millennia, to carry on this written record through the church, 
so that we can now gather around it and find hope, find help, find salvation. So Father, I pray that these words written down by John Mark, Lord, that these words given over by Your Spirit would give life. Lord, if there's one here this morning who is lost, who is looking at this world as if this is all there is and that all that matters, looking to eke out of this existence a bit of happiness here and now with no thought about the grand story, no thought about what happens later, then God, by Your Spirit, we are asking that You would be kind enough to awaken that soul by Your Word this morning to seek help and hope in Jesus Christ, Yahweh who saves. Father, I know because I'm gathered by church members that there are many here who are believers in Jesus Christ, who are children of God, followers of Christ, who love You. Father, I pray this morning that You would give us encouragement in the wilderness. That, Father, we would remember the grand story. That we would believe that this will all culminate in the end the exact way that You've promised. That we will see Christ as our Savior and our hope. That we will know that the Spirit is moving us through. That although these times may feel tough, they are all brought by You and they will be used by Your Spirit to bring about that which Your Son has purchased in His death and in His righteous life. So we ask all these great things, Father. We don't trust in ourselves. We trust in You. We don't trust in a preacher. We trust in Your Word. Do, Father, now as You please. Amen. Well, um, so here we are. Mark's Gospel. The third Gospel. Uh, And Mark's Gospel opens up with two words. The first two words in the original, beginning and gospel. Beginning and gospel. Now, the word gospel, it's an old English word that means good news. Literally translated, if you go all the way through it, you're just going to get the word good news. Christianity is a story to be told. Let me say that again. Christianity is a story to be told. It is news to be spread. It is a religion. It has a set, defined list of beliefs that must be believed and practiced. But it is not a method for finding mere happiness. It is not merely a political ideology or philosophical system or an ethical standard, though certainly... It's got implications for all of those things. More than anything else, at its core, it is news. And Mark lays this out by saying, I want to start with the beginning of the news. The good news. Christianity is a story. And we have a word that we call true stories. We call those news So the first thing I want us to see this morning is Christianity as a story. That's how Mark will deliver it over to us. We believe that Mark, like every other book of the Bible, has a divine author. That is, God is the one who wrote this book, inspired this book. That said, like every other book of Scripture, there is a human who penned it. 
And that human who penned it is a guy by the name of, you guessed it, Mark. Um, His name is Mark. Though actually, we know him more often through the book of Acts is John Mark. You remember John Mark. He, He was with Paul and Barnabas on their very first missionary journey. In fact, he caused somewhat of a stir between Uh, Paul and Barnabas, as uh, disagreement arose as to whether John Mark should be allowed to continue with Paul and Barnabas because at one point John Mark deserted them. Paul said no. Barnabas took John Mark with them, the ever-encourager that Barnabas was, and he was a big help to Barnabas, but furthermore, he actually goes on in the book to be a, uh, not only a book, but through the rest of his life, to be a very big help to the Apostle Peter. He traveled around with Peter, was with Peter all the way to the end, so, so that at the end of the epistle, first epistle of Peter in the fifth chapter, as Peter's closing things out, he calls John Mark his son. Well, not only would he be a huge help to Peter, but he would be a major uh, figure in the church. John Mark would be in charge of starting the planting the church in Alexandria in Egypt, in northeastern Egypt. This, in fact, becomes one of the most important churches in the early church. So the book of Mark is by a guy who was not an eyewitness account to everything he writes. Like Luke, he's not an eyewitness account to everything he writes. That said, he is writing from one who was an eyewitness account. It is believed that the book of Mark is a compilation of the stories that Peter told, in particular the sermons that he preached in Rome, about his life with Jesus. Clement of Alexandria, um, also there in Egypt, uh, wrote this to explain to us the origins of Mark. He said, As Peter had preached the word publicly at Rome and declared the gospel by the Spirit, many who were present requested that Mark, who had followed him for a very long time, remembered his sayings, should write them down. In fact, if... You can do this later this afternoon. Go in Acts, go to the 10th chapter, find Peter's sermon there at Caesarea, and I think you will find that sermon as an apt summary of the book of Mark. It will sound a whole lot like Mark because it sounds a lot like Peter. So as Peter goes around, he's preaching. He's spreading the good news That is the primary method that Christianity gets spread. More than any other method, it is because one person goes to another person to spread the news. In fact, we don't call those who spread Christianity politicians. We don't call them philosophers. We don't call them priests. And we don't call them gurus. We have a name for them. We call them evangelists. Why? Because the word evangel is the word gospel. So literally, those who spread Christianity are good newsers. Christianity is a story. It is a story of really good news. So Mark opens up for us in the beginning, the beginning of the gospel. Well, Christianity is a story. Number two, Christianity 
is a story where the main character of the story is Jesus. The main character of the story is Jesus. While Christianity is about spreading good news, spreading the story, it's about spreading a story with a very specific subject. The subject is a person. We get this at the very opening, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, writes Mark, the Son of God. The subject, the main character of the story is who? Well, His name is Jesus. Which in Greek is is the translation of the Hebrew name Joshua. He was a Jew. He lived uh, in the Middle East in the first century. We are told in verse 9 that He was from the town of Nazareth. He was a man. He was born of a woman. Like us, He required oxygen to breathe. Like us, He needed a heartbeat to move blood throughout His body. If beaten, it would hurt Him. If mocked, He would feel rejection. If spit on, He would feel the spit and He would register the shame. If tortured, like us, He would feel excruciating pain. Being fully man, He had all the appetites, all the desires that any man has. He was fully man. He was Jesus of Nazareth. One of the most remarkable things that Christianity believes, or Christians believe, is that everything we believe is centered around the story of a young man who died in his early 30s. Now listen to the things about this man. He never wrote a book. He never owned a corporation. He held no public office. He never fought in a war. He never led one army. He had no formal education. He invented not one thing, at least that we know of. More people hated him than loved him. Yet we are gathered two millennia later in a land that for all purposes was not even known to have existed when this young man walked the earth and we're gathered to hear about him. How could someone so insignificant be so significant? You can do all you want to try to tone down his height, but it's really hard because even today his name enjoys more recognition, perhaps globally, than any other single name. And it's not just in our generation, in just our time. It has been that way since his birth. I mean, our entire calendar in terms of centuries, of how we date things, is centered, literally centered, on His birth. How can that be? He was a nobody. Well, Mark tells us how that can be. He was Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now just swallow that opening statement. It is a startling claim. He is 
the Son of God. That's an incredibly audacious claim. And it's upon this claim that everything stands or falls. You know, nobody, nobody seriously argues that Jesus of Nazareth existed. But was He the Son of God? I'm going to tell you what I think is one of the strongest arguments that He was the Son of God. It is the fact that short of that, He was incredibly insignificant. So you've got this man who died in his early 30s who has such significance and yet is so insignificant. How do you explain it? Unless there is some other point about him that is so incredibly significant it could explain the balance. Mark says the balance is explained because that young man was the Son of God. Well, what makes this all the more interesting is that given the main character is Jesus and given that Jesus is God, then the Christian story is an autobiography since the main character and the author are one. And boy, do you see that point just come straight out of the text in this passage right at us. As we see the Trinity acting, acting in ways uh, you don't find elsewhere in Scripture. In the baptism of Jesus. Here we see the Son baptized, submerged. The Spirit descends as a dove upon Him. And the Father offers His literal voice of approval. This is the story of God by God. It is a revealing. It is revelation. Friend, if you don't realize it this morning, God has shown you incredible kindness in hearing these words. Not my words. In hearing the words of God in Mark. God does not owe us anything and certainly does not owe you or I the opportunity to know anything about Him. But He has been incredibly kind and patient to reveal Himself to us and in so doing, we have life. Christianity has God as the center and the author of the story. You and I are not the center of the story. On the one hand, that hurts my contemporary narcissistic ears to find out that I'm not the center of the story. And yet, on the other hand, deep within me, I know I can't be the center of the story and the story be good news. I need a story about one who is bigger than I, One who is better than I, who can save me from myself. And so do you. And there is a story about that one, and He can save us. His name is Jesus. His name literally means Yahweh saves. Mark refers to Jesus by His title. He calls Him Jesus Christ. Christ wasn't His last name. That's His title. 
Christ means Messiah. Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And in here begins good news. Christianity is a story. The main character of the story is Jesus, the God-man. The beginning of the story, how does it begin? Well, it doesn't begin in the first century. It begins well, well before that. And Mark is very, very careful to show us that. Verse 2 opens by pointing us to the prophet Isaiah. You remember Isaiah as we walk through that. You remember there towards the latter third of Isaiah, we get these servant king promises. There's coming a king who is a servant. Then Mark quotes from Malachi and Isaiah as he describes the ministry of John the Baptist, John the Baptist who will foretell of the Messiah. John is the fulfillment of the one pointing to Jesus. And we see that in the ministry of Jesus as John says there in Mark, and he preached saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. Now you and I, that doesn't mean nearly as much to us because shoes uh, in our culture are just shoes. Well, in any culture uh, towards the east, shoes are not just shoes. Take shoes and wear them in someone's house and find out if they're just shoes. That is an incredibly rude thing to do. Take your shoes and clamp them together in front of someone and folks, you have just uh, made someone very upset. It is very low to touch someone's shoes. And John says, this Jesus, I can't even... It's not that I can't even touch His shoes. I can't even touch a strap on His shoes. John's job is to point to Jesus. And John, friends, is a peculiar dude. He's weird. Let me tell you, John was clothed with camel's hair, wore a leather belt around his waist, and ate locusts and wild honey. You're not reading Rolling Stones. That's straight out of the book of Mark. Why are you telling us this, Mark? Well, in 1 Kings, we're told about another guy who was also quite strange, dressed quite strange. He wore clothes with camel skin, and he had on a belt of leather. His name was, you remember him, Elijah. Now, Elijah, let me ask you this. Do you remember how Elijah died? That's just a fun game of Christian trick questions. Uh, Elijah didn't die. Um, so Elijah was carried off uh, by a whirlwind of fire into heaven. And then Jewish legend says he doesn't die because he will return to point us to the Messiah. Well, Mark in no way is claiming that John is Elijah in the flesh, but he is claiming that John will fulfill and is fulfilling the function of Elijah. He is pointing us to the Christ. And in so doing, John stands in as a type, a picture of all of the prophets. He stands there like all the prophets pointing to Christ. And would that not be fitting? You walk through the prophets. We did together. If I had to ask you for one word, 
if you had to sum up all those sermons from the prophets, would the word repentance not just be perfect? That's the perfect word. And what type of message does John call these folks to out of the wilderness? Or out into the wilderness? He calls them to repentance. John stands pointing to Jesus. And as he does, he represents the entire Old Testament pointing to Jesus. Now, this shouldn't be a shock because Peter stands up and preaches, at least we have them recorded, five times in the book of Acts. In chapters 2, 3, 4, 5, and 10, Peter stands up and preaches. Every one of those sermons, he draws from the foundation of the Old Testament to make the argument that Jesus is the Christ. He's not alone. So also in the book of Acts does Philip, does Stephen, and does Paul. The story of the Old Testament begins not in the first century at the birth of Jesus. Sorry, the story of Christianity begins not with the birth of Jesus. It begins in the Garden of Genesis. It begins in the Old Testament. Fourth, the sign of the story. The sign of the story. It's said that a picture is worth a thousand words. I'm not sure of the exact word count there. Don't know if you would have a way to measure it, but I think we would all agree that a picture really can help represent, explain an idea, in particular an abstract idea. Well, this is the value of baptism for Christianity. It is a picture, an incredible picture, of the Christian story, of this good news. And it begins with John. No, it begins, where do you think I'm going to say? The Old Testament. You're exactly right. It begins in the Old Testament. What is the picture of water across the Old Testament? It's the picture of judgment, right? It's the picture of Noah in the flood as God judges all of the earth and then graciously promises, I will withhold the wickedness so that I will not do this again. It's a story of judgment when God takes the waters as Moses is, uh, and the Israelites come across the Red Sea and God judges the Egyptians and the water covers them. It's the story of judgment when Jonah gets on that boat and the tempest comes and, uh, and blows the ship because God is judging Jonah's disobedience. To enter into the waters is to enter into judgment. To be lifted out is to be saved. Let me say that again. To enter into the waters is to enter into judgment. To be lifted out is to be saved. The first picture we get in the book of Mark, in this Gospel story, Just think about it. It's the picture of Jesus being submerged down into the water. Perfect Lamb of God goes down into the water and He's being submerged by a broken human sinner named John. And it's the amazing picture of Him being lifted back up. The Spirit descends... And the Father says, 
I am pleased. In other words, all of heaven rises to say, we agree. We agree that this is right. We agree that this is good. By identifying with Jesus in baptism, you not only identify with the full fall of judgment, but the incredible news is you also get to identify with the Father's spoken word of pleasure. What an amazing, amazing promise. John says in verse 8, I've baptized you with water, but He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now we are Baptists. We love some baptism. We just love it. We, we believe that the word baptize um, means baptize, uh, which means to submerge. And we love it. Uh, we like getting them wet. Now all that said, we can actually, here on these premises, with our good old Winston-Salem water, we can do no more than John did. All we have here is mere water. But inasmuch as one who's baptized identifies with Christ, it is an amazing and apt and obedient and right picture of, a, of redemption. The one baptized shows their belief and identity that they are going down into the judgment of God with Christ. And by the grace of God, by the Spirit of God, are being raised with Christ to newness of life. The picture of the Christian story, the sign of the Christian story is baptism. Next, every story has villains, and the Christian story has villains. In fact, there are at least two main ones. We see this in verse 12 and verse 13. After the amazing scene of the baptism, we're taken out into the wilderness where Jesus will face Satan. Read with me, verse 12. Then the Spirit immediately... You're going to like that word immediately by the time we're finished with the book of Mark because Peter likes the word immediately, or Mark did, or one of them did. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he's in the, in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he's with wild animals, and the angels are ministering to him. The whole point is to hearken us back to Genesis. It's to hearken us back to Eden. There, here in the garden, sorry, here in the wilderness, we see a man tempted by Satan. The difference is between this and Eden is that now we have a man who is standing in a dangerous wilderness, not a perfect garden. In the garden, we had man with all of creation subdued underneath him. And now we have a man standing in the wilderness, and the text is very careful to tell us, with dangerous animals. Because the first Adam failed in the perfect garden, the second Adam, our Lord Jesus, will be subjected to pain and suffering in the dangerous wilderness as He faces the evil one. The first Adam, who represents every single one of us, 
was perfectly set up to overcome the evil one and fell. He was perfectly set up to overcome the evil one and he failed. And yet the second Adam, Christ Jesus, with every excuse to fail, resists the evil one perfectly. Scripture has two main villains. Satan and broken human nature. It was because of mankind's failure in regards to Satan that led creation to the second villain, that is, broken human nature. But the glorious point right out of the gate about this second Adam is that when he overcomes the evil one, we already know he has overcome broken, sinful nature. It has no hold on Him. We see a Savior. Now, I want us to spend the last bit on the scene of the story. And i got to be honest, as I was studying the text, this is where I found the most help. The scene of the story is the wilderness. If you look at these 13 verses, and you look at what word outside of prepositions and conjunctions and definite articles and indefinite articles. The, the uh, most used, frequent used word in this text is the word wilderness. It's used four times. In verse 3, we're told that John fulfills the voice calling out where? In the wilderness. In verse 4, we're told that John came baptizing where? In the wilderness. And then immediately following the baptism of Jesus, we're told the Spirit, of, uh, the Spirit of God drove Jesus where? In the wilderness. And He is tested for 40 days and 40 nights, it says again, and repeats itself, in the wilderness. Well, notice that the place one finds Jesus is the wilderness. This is one of the most misunderstood ideas about Christianity today. And that is this notion that somehow people are saved straight out of Egypt, the slavery of Egypt, and taken straight to the promised land. Now, I don't know of anyone who's, who's teaching that you'll go straight from here, from conversion, straight to heaven. But what they posit forward is something more like a pseudo-heaven. That is, that once you're converted, you will now live a life free of tribulations, free of temptations and hardships and heartaches. But we know that's just not true. Where were the children of, Egypt, of, of Israel between Egypt and the promised land of Canaan? Where did they go? They were in the wilderness. Why were they in the wilderness? Because they sinned. Because they failed to fully trust God to be enough. The wilderness is a place for the children of God to learn to let God be enough. Let me say that again. The wilderness is a place for the children of God to learn to let God be enough. God is kind to bring us into the wilderness and let testing and trials and hardships, heartache, 
chip away at every area of our lives where we fail to fully trust Him. Every one of us, every one of us feels the aching pain of wanting to go from baptism straight to ascension, skipping the wilderness altogether. But God loves us enough to drive us into the wilderness. Furthermore, it's the wilderness where Christ is found. You can think of the lost man as dwelling in slavery in Egypt, unwilling to imagine that there could be a life where he might be freed, but instead just going ahead and making this his home. The sign that the children of God were about to be delivered from Egypt is when the children of God got on their knees and asked for help, dared to believe there might be a way out of this cruel bondage. And then we, we see a light of hope, a light in the darkness. His name is Jesus. He's Yahweh and He saves. And when He rescues us, the Spirit is kind enough to take us into the wilderness where He begins to unpackage the child of God that the Father has already purchased. The unpackaging, brothers and sisters, happens in the wilderness. You know, as you read saints across history, you begin to see that for them, as they walk with God year after year, through trial after trial in the wilderness, you begin to see an amazing thing happens. The lows stop being so low and the highs stop being so high. It's as if the person of Jesus fills up their hearts in such a way that there's not much more the wilderness can add and there's not much more the wilderness can take from them. But hear me clearly. Christianity, never claims that those who get through the wilderness do so because of their own efforts. No, it is impossible. Instead, the good news is that Jesus endures the wilderness in the scene before us and He will do so all the way to the cross. He lives the perfect life just like the death of Jesus counts towards our debt of sin, so also His life counts towards our righteousness. He has already endured your wilderness. He has already purchased all the righteousness that you need to endure. You're His, safe in His hands forever. One of the sweet things about church life is that we walk through the wilderness together. We've seen some tough times together in just even the last few years. Some of you have buried friends, children. You've buried friends, children. Some of you have buried spouses. Some of you have endured and are still enduring chronic pain on a regular basis. Some of you have walked through bouts of real darkness and heartaches of the soul. Some of you have had your marriages either shattered or close to shattered. You've lost your jobs, struggled with addiction to drugs, alcohol, or pornography. Perhaps worse, some of you have watched your kids walk through some of these horrors. Some of you have felt more tired 
than you ever imagined given the demands of raising children, those in diapers and those driving cars. Some of you have had close friends abandon you without so much as even caring to explain themselves. Some have had those who once deeply loved you treat you with callousness or cruelty. Some have had your family members treat you unjustly and unkind. Folks, I love you enough to tell you from the Scriptures, this is life in the wilderness. It's not the life of TV preachers, but it is the life of the children of God. He has been kind to bring us into the wilderness to unpackage the very child of God that the Father has purchased by helping us lose all the things that we love more than our Father. And He's been kind to do so in the community of the church. We are here to spur one another on, to encourage each other to walk through the wilderness, the path that our Savior has already treasured for us. Endure, brothers, sisters. Hold on. Yahweh saves. As we close, how do you respond to a text like this? Well, I, I think you respond to a text about news the way you respond to news. So for example, let's say that the news broke you can't really say on the television, but uh, across your smartphones, um, the news breaks that there is a breakout of a horrible virus. That it's broken out on the East Coast and it will spread. If acquired, the person will surely die. The news also tells us that there is a cure. And if we'll follow instructions, we can find ways to get it. How do you respond to that? Well, there's actually really only two main responses. Now, there's a lot of hypotheticals in between, but there are two main responses. It's all going to come down to whether you believe it or not. If you believe, if you don't believe it, then you're not going to do anything different. You're going to write it off as mere hype and think you're going to be just fine. If you're here this morning and you're hearing the news I'm telling you and you feel like writing it off and calling it mere hype, then I tell you straight from the Word of God, you are in bondage in Egypt and you dare not think that you might be set free. I proclaim to you one who can set you free. His name is Jesus. He is your only hope. Turn and be saved. And then, there are those who do believe. So, how do you show that you believe? That won't be hard. You'll follow the instructions. You'll figure out how to get to the vaccine. Fellow members of the wilderness... Will you continue to believe the story of Jesus? Will you live in the wilderness like the story of Jesus is true and dare to conceive of your life, of your lives through the lens of this amazing story? When the wilderness is uncomfortable, when it's painful, will you believe that God is awakening you 
to the very joy of Himself. He is saving you through the very One who has called you out of darkness into the wilderness so that you might one day enjoy the promised land. Let's pray.